Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory. If you haven't already subscribed, please catch us wherever you love to listen to your podcast, from the Relevant Radio app to Apple, YouTube, you name it, we are there. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to go and give us a five-star review to help other people discover the podcast. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. So I was at Mass this morning, and you ever have those moments where distractions are just absolutely getting you? You are not alone. If you are distracted in church or during prayer, I'm there. And I'll tell you what the pregnant lady over here was uh, distracted by. I think I'm 28 weeks, something like that. Uh, I was distracted thinking about food. Yep, food. And I was sitting here thinking about, I've really been missing my mom's cooking lately. I need to tell her. She might hear this before I get to tell her. Uh, But I've been missing her cooking. I was thinking about all the foods I want to eat that my mom makes because my mom's an excellent cook and I was thinking about her enchiladas I was th- sitting here going great all these food allergies I can't have the tortilla okay maybe I could try and make with almond flour tortillas I actually made almond flour tortillas uh what are they called taquitos the other day they were amazing and then I'm thinking okay great well I can't have cheese because I'm allergic to dairy so I'm sitting here thinking hmm you know what would be delicious not trying vegan cheese. I'm really against vegan cheese, but I was actually considering vegan cheese to try and make, replicate these enchiladas for my mom. Anyways, that was my distraction during mass. And as you can tell, I was thinking about it for far too long when I should have been praying. So Lord forgive me, but the struggle can be real during mass. And it's a challenge for us to stay stay attentive in prayer, but also I think in general, we tend to think that we can multitask. We can think and work on multiple things, but we're not really as good at being present and multitasking as we think. So joining me in just a moment will be Dr. Adriana Stacy, a board-certified psychiatrist. We're going to actually talk about whether or not we can actually multitask, how this relates to current technology use. We'll also discuss how to balance screens in your marriage and as a family. She works with ScreenStrong.com and is it particularly interested in the impact of smartphones and technology on the on the young today, especially mental health issues? If you have a question for the psychiatrist today, feel free to reach out. The number is 1-888-914-9149, or you can send your question via social media as well. Just follow me at Timmery. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. We put a post up on social media. Also, if you followed the story of now pregnant Chrissy Tagan, who is known as model, a TV personality, her husband is singer John Legend. Well, she's claiming that the very, very sorrowful experience that she shared with the world a few years ago about her little boy Jack having experienced a miscarriage, she's now claiming that this story that was so touching and I think endearing for many people that they they mourned with her and they journeyed with her through the sorrow uh, and prayed for her and supported her. She's now saying, well, that was actually an abortion. I didn't realize it till today. 
Was it really? Well, I'll debunk the myth that she's claiming this was an abortion. And I hate to have to go there, but here's this woman who has an incredible ability to share things with people. And she's manipulating a story to try and promote abortion. Sadly, her own story. It's the loss of her child. Uh, but it brings it to mind important questions. We'll also take your questions. I had a number of questions coming for today's show. So number is 1-888-914-9149. Joining me now is Dr. Adriana Stacy, a board-certified psychiatrist. She works closely with ScreenStrong.com. We have Melanie Hempe as a regular guest here on Trending talking about taking your kids back from the digital world and the screen addiction we face. We're going to talk about how to bounce screens in your marriage and as a family in a moment. But Dr. Stacy, welcome to Trending. I want to dive into the topic of multitasking today. Hey, Timory. Thanks for having me tonight. I really appreciate it. Now, when we talk about multitasking, it's interesting because I think especially Gen Z is probably some of the most guilty of this today. They really think they can watch the movie, listen to the music, work on something, have a social conversation on their phone, and also be scrolling social media at the same time as they do all of those things. But it's not just the young and Gen Z. I would argue that it's all of us who we really think we're more capable of multitasking than we are. How realistic is this? You know, I agree. I think it started, um, you know, I'm in my 40s and I remember being in high school and hearing about multitasking and how that's such a good thing and how it's great that you should be able to do more than one thing at once. And so we kind of get this idea that if we can't multitask, that's wrong, right? Or that's bad. And so I think that a lot of people feel like they can multitask really well, or you'll hear people say that, like, I'm such a good multitasker. I even had one of my kids say that to me once, mom, I'm such a good multitasker. But really (laughs) what we know about multitasking that it's actually not a good thing, right? So it's actually um, can be dangerous. Um, There was actually a University of London study that showed that participants who multitask during cognitive tasks experienced an IQ decline that was similar to smoking marijuana or staying up all night. And so what we're seeing is that when you multitask, your, your IQ can fall, one study even said up to 15 points. So I think it's important for us to sort of recognize when we're doing that multitasking and in our current age, what am I talking about? So I'm talking about having your phone out, listening to music, having your laptop out and trying to get work done at the same time. Right. And so I'm sure we can all have seen that, especially if you have a teenager, you'll see them sitting at the desk with their computer open with their music on their earbuds in and they're also on their phone and so i think it's important that we tell ourselves let our kids know as well that doing that is actually more harmful than it is helpful it's interesting because i'm in a phase in life with being you know pregnant and a mom of a toddler and presence is everything being present to your kid you know you can be present physically but you might not be emotionally present and it's so easy even to just be distracted with Things as simple as multitasking and doing dishes and trying to visit or trying to clean and trying to be with your baby. Or, you know, you can't really be on the phone and be always meeting their emotional needs. There's this constant battle and there are so many distractions throughout the day that if I don't actually sit down and play on the floor with her, you know, really work on being emotionally present, not just physically around the house, she suffers for that. And I see that in a very simple way with the toddler where we kind of just have this attitude that kids are so uh, flexible and pliable and they just go with the flow, which they do to a certain extent, but we all still have needs. And I find that with this idea of multitasking, 
we're often not meeting our needs. As you mentioned, there's that University of London study with this decline in IQ. Uh, We're not becoming smarter for it. But would you argue that there's also an emotional fallout or um, kind of implosion that's happening for us as well? Oh, for sure. You know, one thing that's interesting is that they um, have done studies looking at the actual structure of the brain during multitasking, and they found that people that are high multitaskers actually had less brain density in an area of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex. Big words, I know. But the reason I bring up that part of the brain is because that's the region of the brain that's responsible for empathy and cognitive and emotional control. So what we're finding is that people that are high multitaskers, which means they spend a lot of their time doing more than one thing at a time, actually found that that part of the brain had um, shrunk a little bit. And so that's the part that's responsible for empathy. So how we respond to other people's feelings as well as emotional control. So that's why we see sometimes these kids or even adults who spend a lot of time multitasking are a lot more impulsive, um, spend a lot more time feeling angrier or have less, less control of their emotions. So would the multitasking part be a coping mechanism because of the difficulty with the empathetic and emotional interaction? You know, it could be a feedback loop. Um, You know, one thing that happens when we use a lot of digital technology at once is that we have this increase in dopamine in our brain, which is a reward hormone. And so we get all of this dopamine from all these different devices and screens that we're using when we're multitasking in that way. And then what our brain does is it seeks out more of that. And so that in and of itself can lead to emotional control problems, lower cognition, less empathy, more impulsivity. And so it definitely can be something that feeds back on itself. It makes me think of, I think, an error and a crisis that we experience in this culture of being stuck in the cog of the machine of progress and always having to progress at something, which it's human to grow and develop. That's very normal. It's a part of who we are, but this obsession with, you know, I remember there was a kind of silly Instagram video that went around about a year ago, and it was of this man who who was jokingly mocking like the 30-year-old millennial who said, I'm just so busy. And he goes on saying one thing after after the other. I just started up my second startup. I'm also writing a novel. I'm working on my nutrition company. I'm also working on being an influencer and like go talking about all these 25, 30 things that she's doing that may sound silly when you hear it like that, but isn't far from how we often live our lives with all that we take on today. I agree. And I think it's really important for us to be intentional and the science backs that up. So here's an interesting uh, study for you. So, uh, and it's a little bit older from 2009 from Western Washington University. So their um, hypothesis was that people that are busy doing two things at once don't notice things right in front of them. So when you go back to talking about taking this into your emotional life and you think about noticing your child's feelings or what's going on um, in your home or in front of you or with relationships. So in this study, they had this um, person dress up like a really silly clown and ride a unicycle around campus, like in the middle of like the busy college campus. And they found that 75% of the college students who walked across that part of the campus did not even see this clown. And the reason for that is because they're looking at their phone, right? When they're walking across campus. So you can take that example and extrapolate it to anything I think in your life, because I think, 
if you're not paying attention to what's in front of you, there are so many things that you can miss. I remember reading a book a couple of years ago and it was talking about how as humans, we're constantly trying to make these emotional connections with people. You know, it might be a little, you know, touches of contact of just saying, hi, how are you? Or maybe you look at your up at your child or your spouse and you say, I love you. Or maybe your kid is just looking up to make eye contact and that these are very human things. They're important that we do, but often they go missed by the person we're trying to communicate them to. And again, coming back to the toddler example in my home, it's so often that a little toddler will either just want to run up and say hold you and want to hold you for two seconds and then run back away or even just look up to see are you looking are you proud of me do you want to clap and it's not just kids that need this adults often need that too but we're so distracted sometimes I think with our multitasking that we miss those very human needs when we're multitasking you know there was a um there's a professor at Stanford, Clifford Nass, and he does some studies about multitasking and how that affects the brain. And according to his research, the more that you multitask, so the more often, the more things you're doing at once, the less able you're, um, the less you're able, excuse me, to learn, concentrate and be nice to people. So I thought that be nice to people part was interesting, which goes back to the other study I was talking about, about emotional control. And um, the other thing he found is that when we multitask all day, that actually changes our brains. So changes the pathways in our brains. Uh, a similar study found that people who are constantly connected to email, so constantly multitasking when it came to communication, actually had higher heart rates, which I think also would cause higher cortisol levels, which can lead to higher stress and actual physical problems. Fascinating. So here's the question I think we all have. How do we fix it and what is and is not acceptable multitasking? Sure. So, you know, over time, it's become uh, bigger and bigger, more and more things, right, to do at once. So here's some things that, that I feel are helpful. So one is to do what we call time chunking. So what is time chunking? Time chunking is taking a specified amount of time and using that to focus only on one thing. So if um, if we're speaking about children, um, time chunking would be like, okay, we get home from school, we're going to spend 20 minutes playing outside and we're going to spend 20 minutes doing our homework. And, that, and that's all we're going to do in that time. Okay. And so um, as adults, we can do that. We can say, okay, I'm going to spend 30 minutes just paying bills or 30 minutes working on this project. And I think that if you're more aware of a specific amount of time that you are um, putting towards a specific task, you're going to be a lot more successful. Um, mm -hmm. And science backs that up as well. Mm -hmm. We're more productive in that time, even if it's yes. a shorter time than we may think is necessary to accomplish something. Yes. Another thing to do is to set really clear priorities. And so um, I always tell my patients and I tell my kids this and even friends when we're talking is to make a to-do list and put the number one thing you have to get done that day at the top. And so that way, do things in a way of priority. So you're not 
constantly going back and forth. Like, for example, if you've got to get on your phone to do something, say you're like, oh, I forgot to pay that bill, for example, you get on your phone and you open it up and you see all these other apps and things. And chances are you get distracted by that. And so to really keep in your head a specific priority, I'm going to go on my phone to do this one thing, then I'm going to shut it off. Or I'm going to go into my email to answer this specific email. And then I'm going to go to my next priority. So I think setting clear priorities is, is helpful as well. I like how you give the example specifically of phone use because I found this important where I'm almost chanting in my head, I'm here to check this particular message. I'm here (laughs) to check this particular message. And this is a really good argument for why not having notifications on, even that pop up, for example, when I have my phone open, unless a phone call comes through, I won't have a text message pop up on my screen so I won't know it's come in and then dive to a different task. And I found that's been extremely helpful for me to get rid of all of those notifications that pop up on the screen. A hundred percent. And that's one of the first things we talk to all of our patients about, especially those that I'm treating for ADHD is first thing when you get a phone, do not allow any notifications at all. Um, Another thing that we can do is to minimize distractions in our workspace. So for example, if you're sitting down to do something on your computer, like uh, an example with my children is like they have a research project and they're going online and they have to research about penguins, right? So we want to make sure that in that workspace, there's our book about penguins and there's our one website site we're looking at about penguins. There's no other tabs open. There's not a phone around. There's not music on. There's not other things going going on around them. So minimizing distractions in this specific space, I think is super helpful. I love this. And that's probably why my office is stressing me out right now, because I have uh, stacks on the floor surrounding me of like, here's my bill stack. Here's my filing stack here. Here are my medical things stack. And I hate being in this room right now, but because it's distracting and mm-hmm. I just, I want to go and sit and hide in my bedroom that's clean and that I can just take my to-do list and my computer too, but I try not to work in my room too. So, but that's how I'm feeling right now. And so I love this tip of really having focus workspace and only having content inspiring that specific item. Yes. Um, And you know, it's interesting that there has actually been a study that showed that people that multitask actually have lower creativity. And so if you think about that, it makes sense because you don't have time to be creative, right? Because you're constantly getting distracted by all of the things that are in front of you. And so um, that's why I talk, I have four kids at home. And so um, we're always talking about keeping your workspace tidy so that when you go there to do an art project, or you go there to do your homework, or you go there to do your uh, devotional or whatever it is that you're doing that time, you're not distracted by your workspace. Excellent. Do you have any other tips for us? Um, I mean, I think we've covered quite a bit of the tips, but I think it's important just to remember that when you find yourself sucked into that multitasking, which will happen, right? I mean, that's just the world we live in. To remind yourself that multitasking decreases your productivity. So you make 50% more errors when you multitask and it actually takes you longer. So it takes you 50% longer to complete a task when you're trying to do more than one thing at a time. Um, And also to keep note of how it's affecting you physically. And so notice if it's making you feel on high alert or making you feel more impulsive or making your heart rate go up. So just to be more aware of what you're doing, I think is the first step. 
that physical awareness is key and one that I think we've lost, especially with phone use in technology destruction. We become very uh, disengaged with our bodies to be alert as to those physical uh, reactions we're having. Final question that came in, what if your job includes multitasking? You know, people often talk about cockpit navigation of a pilot or you know, people could argue uh, you know, mo- mothering you know, it requires multitasking. What if you feel like your job requires that? You know, and that's that's a good question because mothering is an excellent example. You know, we're required to be watching this child and watching this child and cooking and, um, you know, making sure that we're available, you know, and all of those things. And there are certain types of jobs where you have to do a lot of things at once. But I think it might be worth reconsidering how you do things, talking to your boss or your children or your spouse or whoever about why don't we really try to work on time chunking? It really does work. So if you say, even if the time chunk is five minutes or 10 minutes, we like to say 20 because 20 is about the amount of time that you can keep focused on something. But I think it's important to talk to those that you work with or the other people in your home about trying to do the best you can to stay focused on one thing at a time. Excellent. This is why we could go on and talk about the Pomodoro technique to help us stay in focus. So that's another topic for another day, but you can look that up if you're interested. We'll post a link on social media as well as as well to the Pomodoro Technique. We're going to come back with Dr. Adriana Stacy, board-certified psychiatrist, to talk about how to balance screens in your marriage and as a family. If you have a question for her, the number is 1-888-914-9149. I'll be right back. And again, we're going to talk about Chrissy Tagan sharing that the miscarriage we all mourned, that baby we all mourned with her a few years ago, she's now claiming that actually, well, I had a life-saving abortion. Is that true? I'll actually talk about what she shared and what what was happening medically here because it's important with regard to the debate over abortion. So what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. How do you balance screens, phones, you name it, whatever screen it might be, a tablet, even TV, computer, and social media in your marriage and with your family. Joining me now is Dr. Adriana Stacy, board-certified psychiatrist. We, she works with ScreenStrong.com. That's ScreenStrong.com, working to take back your kids from the digital age. Dr. Stacy, where do we even begin? I know you're seeing this as a psychiatrist, the imbalance and the disruption within marriages, within individual lives, and especially within the family. How do we bring some semblance of balance back into our lives with the ever-present and growing presence of screens? Sure. I see this every day in my clinical practice. So there's not a day that goes by that I don't have a patient no matter the age, Uh, you know, my youngest patient's five, my oldest patient's 82. So there's a wide range of ages. And every single week, almost every single day in clinic, I have a patient talk to me about, I can't put my screen down or I don't feel motivated. And it's because of my screen or it's affecting my sleep at night. And so I think it's important for all of us to really buckle down and 
recognize how much time we're spending on our devices. Um, you know, one thing that I have found that's really helpful for me and my husband and I talk about this is setting screen time limits on your phone. And the yes. first thing that does is help you recognize how much time you're really using it. So you can go in into the settings and you can set a screen screen time amount. And once you hit that number of hours, it makes you like make an exception every time you want to use your phone. And so then you're really recognizing how much you're picking it up when you're talking to your spouse, when you're talking to your children, when you're sitting at a red light. So I think that's the first step is just awareness. And it, it's not fun actually having those on there sometimes. You might be surprised how often you're having to go around yes. to grant yourself access to use something. And it's funny because especially on the iPhone at least, and this is available on all phones now, but on the iPhone you'll set a limit for how long you can spend on something and you say ignore for 10 minutes or ignore for five minutes. And then you get that next reminder, oh, I just ignored that again. And maybe, you know, you had an allotted time for how much time you could spend on text messaging, Instagram or whatever it might be. It's really surprising even if you are constantly going around those barriers it's a just a little extra level of accountability yes and it gets real annoying after a while so you really recognize how long you're spending on it and you know the observational studies actually show that more than two hours a day total on a smartphone is linked to suicidality and depression as well as impulsivity and anxiety so that's what i usually tell patients is that two and a half hours really should be your limit, your complete limit. Um, and actually that's across all screens. And so that's really hard for us to do for those of us that work in front of a screen. But I think the first step is just to be aware of that. Also how it's making you feel, right? And so like you said, you'll set that uh, exception for 10 minutes. That goes by in a flash. So before you know it, you've been on your phone 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And think about all the other things that you could have been doing in that time, right? Yes. Wow. Okay. You're going to have to send me a link to that study because I have not seen that one yet. And I think that's very telling, especially being aware, like you said, if we're on our computers for a good chunk of the day, we really need to be more aware of our screen time with our phones the rest of the day as well. For sure. And here's an interesting study that I like to talk about. You know, I could sit and talk about this for hours because this is something that I have a lot of passion about is trying to get people off screens as much as they can. But here's a good study. There were th over 300 participants in this study, and it showed that just the presence of phones on a table at dinner uh, caused those participants at the table to feel more distracted and have lower enjoyment of their experience at the dinner. So the phones were just on the table. They weren't even using them. They weren't looking at the screens. They were just there present. So I always find that that's interesting to talk to my patients about because do you put the phone on the table? Is it always in your pocket? Are you always looking at it and waiting for you know a text or notification? And so even just having it there is actually shown to make us feel less enjoyment. You know, it's interesting you bring this up because I am curious your thoughts. Just looking at my phone can kind of be a stressor for me. And I'm really good. You know, I can keep my phone on black and white for the most part, have all these notifications out. I try to be really careful, you know, throw my phone in the drawer and leave it there for chunks of the day or majority of the weekend. But just the presence of seeing my phone is a stressor for me. It's a trigger. And I always thought, you know, some people say, oh, Timmy, I think you're being a little more sensitive to your phone, but I don't. I think I'm just more aware of it. What What's going on here? Can you explain, you know, are we in need of being more aware of that? Is it that some people are more sensitive to that stressor of the phone than others? 
Oh, I definitely think so. So here's what happens when you use a device like a, like a phone. So in your brain, there's a neurotransmitter called dopamine, and this is a reward neurotransmitter. So for example, when you eat, your brain is going to release a little bit of dopamine because your brain wants, your, wants you to remember eating because eating allows you to survive, right? And so it wants you to recognize that that's a reward that you should eat. But what happens when we use devices, and studies show it's very similar to what happens when you use cocaine, actually, is that there's what we call a dopamine dump. So there's lots and lots and lots of dopamine that's released. And so then when you put the phone down, your brain is seeking that reward, right? So think of it like if you go into a casino and you win at the at the slot machine. Most people don't walk away, right? They keep doing it because their brain is telling them it will happen again. There'll be more reward, more reward. And so that's what happens with these devices. And so when we don't have all that dopamine being released because we're not looking at the screen or interacting with it, then our brain is seeking that out. And that's why it's especially important for children and teenagers to not use screens because their reward pathways are actually extra sensitive. Um, but it happens with adults as well. I just had a patient in my office the other day that was talking about Dr. Stacy. I cannot get motivated to do anything. Like I really just want to sit in my rocking chair and play on my phone. And I say to the patient, you're right. That's what your brain wants you to do. That's what your brain is wanting is more of that dopamine. And so there was actually a study in the Journal of Child Development a few years back that actually showed that nighttime usage of a cell phone increased anxiety and depression in teenagers, regardless of what they were doing on their phone. And there's actually another study that mirrored that as well, um, that showed that it's not um, all the time the content, it's actually the amount of time that we're spending using that device, which if you think about it, it makes sense with the dopamine hypothesis, because the less you can do that, the less your brain is going to be seeking out that specific reward. So it's another argument for why we shouldn't be reading on our phones or even yes. doing things such as un so-called unwinding activities from reading Absolutely. Uh, to socializing to watching TV that these screens are actually leading to increased anxiety and depression before bed. And as you said, increased anxiety and depression, which is a serious crisis today for many people. Oh, absolutely. It's it's um, over the years that I've been in practice, it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And um, I've actually had patients I've worked with that we got them to get off of their smartphones and they they're discharged from care. Like their depression, anxiety actually resolves. Now, that's not to say that's the case for everyone, because not everyone's anxiety and depression is caused by a device. But it's interesting how some of the patients, I can see that timeline and we really delve into it. They stop using it um, or get off social media or get it down to two hours less per day. They don't need their medication anymore. So it's really interesting. But you mentioned talking about how it affects relationships. And I think one thing that's important to talk about is how these devices uh, affect our sleep because mm. um, we're seeing a crisis of people not getting enough sleep. And what happens when you don't get enough sleep is you have more relationship conflict. You make more mistakes at work and at home. You feel less fulfilled. Um, you can have lower self-esteem. You can actually gain weight because your body gets confused about fatigue versus hunger. Um, and there actually was a study of over 5,000 people that showed that social media use in and of itself beyond an hour a day actually was associated with a number of things. So longer time to fall asleep. So people were having trouble falling asleep, which is the most common complaint I hear in clinic. Um, 
decreased evening sleepiness. So not even feeling sleepy when it's time to feel sleepy. Um, interestingly, reduced melatonin secretion. So melatonin is secreted in your body to let you know it's time for bed, right? It, it was stopping or reducing the amount of melatonin. So it was actually affecting the brain biologically. Um, also reduced next morning alertness, which is not great if you're having to get up and commute to work the next day, right? Or get up and do something really important. Take care of your children or um, especially like teenagers who are just learning to drive and then they're not feeling alert the next morning. So there's a lot of effects it can have on sleep, which then leads to problems in relationships because you're not getting enough sleep, which we know is, is one of the most important things your brain and body needs. So what would you recommend? I personally try to make sure that I don't have my phone on or really in an accessible area for at least an hour before bed. But it sounds like a lot of the studies point to really decreasing that phone exposure even earlier than that, or at least prolonged phone exposure. It's one thing to maybe set an alarm or whatever that might be. But what should that evening routine look like with regard to a phone or any screen? Right. So in an ideal world, which, you know, it's hard to find, um, four hours before bed is what we need. So we need four hours before bed. So if you go to bed at 10 p.m., you need to be off your phone by six o'clock. Now for a lot of families and a lot of people, that's really hard to do. You've got to check homework or you've got stuff that's work-related. But I think just being aware of the four-hour rule is helpful. Um, and so the earlier you can put that device down, the better off your brain's going to be when it comes to getting sleep. Wow, that is telling and something for many of us to think about four hours away from your phone. But it's doable. You know, if you get home at the end of the day or, you know, it's the sun is starting to set, having that mindset of, okay, with that, my phone is going away. I don't need it. You know, it might be one thing if you need to check a quick message or be available via the phone, but you don't have to be looking at it. Where can you put it where you still hear it ring if necessary, but you don't right. feel that temptation to turn toward it? Right. And I think, you know, once you're home and the people that are under your roof that you need to make sure are safe, they're all home. I think putting it away is so important. You know, turn it off if you need to or put it in a drawer somewhere, not in your nightstand, you know, somewhere that's not visible. And I think the less you see it, the less likely you are to want to engage in that. Brian from California is on the line. He has a question about dopamine release and television. Brian, what's your question today for Dr. Stacy? Yeah, doctor, I was just wondering, was there dopamine released in the uh, early days when the television was invented? Hey, Brian, thanks for your question. That's such a good question because a lot of times we hear about this. Well, what about TV? So this is what we know about TV is there is some of that dopamine release, but it's not nearly as significant. And the main reason is because TV is actually considered to be passive entertainment. So there's quite a bit of distance between you and the television and you're not physically interacting with it. Whereas with smartphones, tablets, video games, you're physically interacting with it. So that's called active entertainment. So we see a little bit less of that concern when it comes to TV. Now there is more of it when you're doing things on your TV, like some of the streaming programs that when one program ends, another one immediately starts or something like YouTube where there's a video and then there's another video and another video. So those actually do cause a similar dopamine release to doing that same function on a handheld device. 
Okay, so I have a follow-up question to that because many people today are watching what I argue is personalized entertainment alone. So we don't sit in front of a TV the same way, but a lot of people will have their iPad directly in front of them or a computer. Um, Would you say that that's still more passive and uh, causes less adverse effects? No. If it's a device that's close to your face or it's in your hand, we see the studies show that that's the same regardless of the content. So when I speak of TV, I'm speaking more of the actual television set that's in the cabinet or hanging on the wall that's step, you know far enough away from you where it's a more passive interaction. That's Dr. Adriana Stacy. You can find her at ScreenStrong.com. We've also tagged her on social media. We've had a few more questions come in, um, some related and not related exactly to entertainment. I know these are kind of some big questions. But I would like to touch on them, Dr. Stacy. M wrote in on Instagram, why does a man continue on with adultery, things such as pornography, etc., uh, as if it's normal and acts like a victim when a spouse says enough is enough? So pornography is a whole that we could spend 30 more minutes on that because pornography affects the brain in a specific way. Um, and it's very closely tied to that dopamine release. And so I think there is, unfortunately, in our society and normalization of pornography, if you go on any of the social standard social media platforms, you're going to see um women and girls, you know, scantily clad and men without their shirts on, you know, so there's this sort of normalization of that. And so I think that happens a lot of times in the brain. We normalize that. But pornography is like a double dose of that um, increase in, in the reward hormones, which can make it that much more dangerous. So what about the connection when, you know, the husband is looking at it as like, I'm a victim for being pulled away from this? Is it because of that dopamine addiction, whether it's through physical adultery or screen adultery through pornography, that it seems normal because it's, I feel good when I do it? Yes, it's the same. It's the same pathway that's doing that. So it's really a really, really strong physiologic response to that because the brain is sensing all of that reward. And we actually see that kids that access pornography and actually overuse it um, at the younger age, they have a higher incidence of addiction to other things as they get older, like drugs and alcohol. So it's a pretty significant pull on the brain. Last question that came in, Dr. Stacy, what do you recommend for anyone feeling anxious about going onto a medication for an anxiety disorder? You know, I think that that's a really um, personal question that you should get with your doctor and talk about. But I think one thing you can do before that, taking that step is look at your phone use and how much you exercise. Because we, you know, we're sort of in this sedentary state and we spend a lot of time doing this superficial interactions. And I think that it's really contributing to anxiety. Mm, excellent. And I've just on a personal as well, I've seen that with food allergies, and I've heard a lot of this in studies that it can increase your heart rate. So sometimes it's a matter of figuring out food. I know for me with having food allergies, I had anxiety before knowing what I was allergic to. And it was food induced in part. And there is some uh, 
biologic reasons for anxiety. For example, you want to be a little bit anxious before you cross the street, right? Because you don't want to get hit by a car. So there are reasons that we need anxiety. You want to be a little bit anxious before a test so that you study, right? Because if you weren't a little bit anxious, you wouldn't study and then you'd fail the test. So, but what happens is, is when that anxiety system gets in overdrive, when there's too much of that is when we really have to take a step back and look at, okay, in what situations do I feel more anxious? Which is why I always say to people, Let's look at your phone use. Are you feeling anxious after you're using social media? Are you feeling anxious after you get a certain notification? Are you feeling anxious because you see, you know, it's a certain time of day or whatever it is and really start there before we look at medication. That's Dr. Stacy here with us on Trending Finder at ScreenStrong.com. We've also tagged her on social media, particularly on Instagram where she's active. I'll be right back here on to take your questions as well as talk about how currently pregnant Chrissy Tagan is claiming that the baby we all mourned with her a couple years ago that she said she lost then via miscarriage, she's actually now arguing was a life-saving abortion. What's the truth? Why is this happening now? I'll explain to you in just a moment. We're talking about what you're thinking about. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. There's 1-888-914-9149. If you have a question, happy to take it. You can always ask it live on Instagram or social media. But before we take some of those questions, I have been interestingly following the story of Chrissy Teigen. So Chrissy Teigen, if you don't know her, is model and TV personality. She's married to singer-songwriter John Legend, and they have a few children together. I think that their fourth is actually on the way right now. Now, you may recall a few years ago, she shared some of the most heartbreaking photos as she and I thought it was an incredible testament to the challenge that many people go through uh, of having experienced the loss of a child via miscarriage. And she shared the photos of her baby boy, Jack, as which is her third child, her and her husband, John Legend, holding, embracing Jack and mourning and loving up on this baby boy as she had a miscarriage. Now, over the last week, and just a side note, Chrissy Tegan is pregnant again. Chrissy has now said that she realizes now, in light of the decision of overturning Roe versus Wade and debate fueling across the country over abortion, that she realizes that actually that was a life-saving abortion. This is everywhere. I mean, you can find it everywhere online right now. And a little bit about Chrissy Tegan. She is a major influencer on social media. Whatever she posts goes viral instantly. She has a very strong following. Lots of people are following her and paying attention to what she says. And so this heartbreaking, tragic experience that people were with her, mourning with her, praying for her. And she was criticized for posting photos on social media after having lost her child. And a lot of people came to her defense. A lot of people appreciated because 
the loss of a child via miscarriage is something that people don't always know how to discuss. And it's a difficult, heart-wrenching topic. And it was one of those moments where you do appreciate the public uh, testament that some people share on social media, giving you a glimpse of their life. This child, baby Jack, who they were adoring these moments they had with him. Well, what really happened? Because now she's claiming that she had an abortion, that it was a life-saving abortion. Well, let's kind of be clear what happened. So what experience, What happened was, because we do need to clarify, and I hate doing this. I feel like I'm diving into the personal details of this woman's life, and I am. She's a public figure, and she shared this. So what we need to understand here is she actually shared in detail at the time of the miscarriage exactly what was happening before and what happened after. So Chrissy Teigen experienced what is placental abruption. That is where your placenta detaches and the nutrients necessary to reach the baby aren't making it to the placenta and to the baby. And so she was experiencing significant bleeding She was actually on bed rest and the doctors were trying to help get the baby to 28 weeks so that they not only were reaching viability where we know babies have been saved after having been born so early, but where they would have the baby a little more developed um, so that yes, the medical interventions would be less, the greater chance of survival. And so as they're working with Chrissy through this very, very um, high risk pregnancy for baby and mom, because this actually is very dangerous for the mom as well, she ends up experiencing a miscarriage at 20 weeks. And she, but what happens is if we actually dive into the details, um, she, they got reached the point where she actually had to be induced and the baby didn't survive. Baby Jack didn't survive, and the photos that we saw on social media were heartbreaking moments of her choosing to share and cherish and mourn and celebrate the life of her little boy Jack. And so we see these images of Johnny Legend and Chrissy Teigen embracing and holding and cuddling and loving up on this baby who has died after she has experienced this very traumatic uh, and high-risk pregnancy and now labor's been induced and the baby did not make it, uh, did not make it, it's not survived. Now, fast forward a couple years later, we know that Chrissy Teigen is very pro-abortion and now she's saying in hindsight, she is realizing that actually what she experienced was a life-saving abortion. What she and Johnny Legend went through with their third son, Jack, was in no way an abortion. She experienced a high-risk pregnancy, placental abruption. The doctors tried to work with her to help her to keep that baby in utero as long as possible. And in the end, she they had to induce her. They delivered the baby early. The baby did not make it. And she cradles, and we have photos of her cradling in her arms, her baby son, Jack. This is completely different, completely different from a woman who could have the exact same medical crisis, the exact same placenta abruption, where What could have happened in the instance of a woman choosing to have an abortion because she has placental abruption would be where she would go in and have, for example, a D&E abortion or various types of abortion options that are available to her where they would go in and literally 
rip the baby to pieces and then suction the baby out of the woman's womb, out of the uterus, out of her body. And then reassemble the pieces and make sure that they got all the pieces. No, that's not what Chrissy Teigen went through because we saw her embracing and holding an intact baby where they induced her so that she had the baby early and the baby did not make it. Now, we don't know if the baby died prior to that induction from what I've seen online or if the baby died in the process of either birth or moments or minutes after the birth. But what we do know is that she did not have a direct and intentional abortion. She had a necessary medical intervention of being induced. Whether because the baby was already dead or because she was not going to survive, they induced her and the baby was extracted from her body intact, not directly killed through the process of an abortion. And that's a key, very key thing that we understand. And it's a travesty that Chrissy Teigen is sharing what was a very, very heartbreaking experience in her life, a touching moment where she reached millions of women and parents across the nation who have been through miscarriage loss, and now she's trying to claim that that was an abortion when it was absolutely not an abortion. She, with her doctors and her spouse, never chose to intentionally go in and kill her baby. No, she was embracing a child that was wanted, that was loved, that was chosen, and that they were trying to save that baby's life and also trying to give her the proper medical care needed. This is a really clear distinction that we have to be able to recognize. So when she argues that she received a life-saving abortion, she did not receive a life-saving abortion, or she received life-saving treatment that did not directly kill her baby. Again, intentional and direct killing of a child versus the early delivery of a child that might not make it outside of the womb is completely different. Delivering a child early before viability is not directly killing a baby. It might be necessary to save the mother's life. And if that's what's necessary, you can deliver that baby early. And if the baby cannot survive, and if, if the medical attention that we are capable at this point in the incredible medical technologies that we have cannot help to keep that baby alive, that baby dies naturally. Not by us, again, dismembering, ripping to pieces, or poisoning that child. And so it's very important that when we hear examples such as Chrissy Teigen and John Legend's story of a miscarriage and then them trying to claim it's an abortion, that we actually provide some clarity and use this very public story right now to clarify the truth of the matter with regard to medically necessary life-saving care for a woman that honors and respects the baby the honors and respects the mother. And when I say honors and respects the mother, I'm not just talking about the physical dimension, the life-saving dimension of the mother, but of her motherhood, of her maternity. Not forcing a woman into the choice of directly choosing to kill her baby. Why would we put that on the consciences of women when we have the ability to respectfully, if necessary, out of medical necessity, deliver a baby early and let nature take its course if we are not able to save that baby rather than us trying to play God and intentionally kill another human being. This actually relates to a question I received 
on Instagram uh, just today from Mark, and he was asking a question about how to explain just this, the difference between the argument that people are making today of saving the life of the mother and that abortion is necessary versus helping people to understand that perhaps an early delivery might be necessary to help save the life of the mother or even try and save the life of the child, but never the direct killing of a baby. This is what has always been practiced in medicine until the legalization and the normalization of abortion. I had a guest on Trending just a few weeks ago, and we'll have to post a link in the show notes as well as online if you keep an eye on social media. I'll post that where I talk with a physician who worked as an emergency high-risk physician to women who were pregnant, and not once did they ever have to go in and directly kill a baby via abortion in order to save the life of the mother. If anything, it was an early delivery that honored and respected the motherhood of the woman, her body, and the baby, and that baby's life. And that's an important distinction we need to be prepared to make as conversations such as Chrissy Teigen and John Legend's stories come out not telling the truth about what is life-saving and non-life-saving care for a woman. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Up next is a family rosary across America. This is Timory from Trending with Timory. A staggering number of what should be working men between the ages of 25 and 54 are neither working nor looking for work today. The author of a book on this crisis of men without work will join me Wednesday on Trending during our weekly Gentleman's Hour to unpack how to fix it and how to understand the crisis of work in our culture. Join me Wednesday, 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.